Hi Rajesh. Hi Smita. Welcome to episode 9 of Dharma Diaries and we are on our series of Gandhi's Hind Swaraj where we discussed chapters 1 to 4 last time and last time we also left off at a very important twist Swaraj and what Gandhi means by it. Today we'll discuss chapters 5 to 8 and let's jump right in. Let's start with the beginning of chapter 5 where according to Mr. I can't yet bring myself to talk about Mahatma Gandhi. I agree and especially chapter 5 is talking about the condition of England being in a very sorry state and that's where my general reverence for Gandhi kind of ended <laughs> right there because then he starts talking about how the British parliament is like a sterile woman. and a prostitute sterile yes. sterile because it hasn't done anything and, and and a prostitute because she's under the control of ministers who change frequently not quite maybe the place to bring this up but of course gandhi had a very difficult relationship to sexuality right mm-hmm. so i think it is a place to bring it up and the fact that he was a product of his time and you know patriarchy was not born yesterday of course it's highly problematic the use of this language and you can say that patriarchy runs deep and men in general think that the purpose of women is to reproduce and if they don't they're of no use and in fact he says that later too which already which is also i think a bit of a problem i think from our perspective when he says you know women should be ruling their houses like queens yes. and instead yeah. they are out there working for um, pittance um, right and i think it's interesting because i think in 2013 uh, the rss chief mohan bhagwat said something very similar that you know when he said that rapes happen in india and not bharat he said he also said that women should just be housewives and husbands should be the breadwinners and yes and and i do think that there's that conservatism of gandhi and and i agree with you and i feel that we have to somehow try to separate out the conservative that is a traditionalist mm-hmm. critique of civilization as just something different and modern mm-hmm. from the more substantial critique of the specific forms of exploitation and alienation and destruction of both human and natural cultures mm-hmm. that happen through it right so i feel like i want to be able to show to we have a more nuanced reading and not just condemn uh, civilization in the terms that uh, gandhi's doing oh absolutely i mean i'm i'm actually happy that he's wrote this so that you know we can at least say okay i do not agree with you mr gandhi and it's possible to read what he's saying and disagree and engage with what he's saying and you know say that let's i mean since he's being the editor and trying to convey to the reader trying to bring the reader to a middle ground and understanding so we can do the same with what gandhi is writing especially this whole prostitute and sterile woman and things are so similar even right now like misogyny sexism is part of our lives and we don't even realize you know women are used as symbols of purity as symbols of for fighting terrorism <laughs> recently the ban on the burkini even in the in the for a sex worker there are two people the customer and the sex worker so why only malign the sex worker because guys will be guys um and the prostitutes right the whole the term prostitute it's so commonly used it's it's amazing how it's become part of our general jargon so i just want to bring and i'm now reading unfortunately not the translation we read upon but anthony parel's translation mm-hmm. is the one that's in front of me but he is asked he as in the editor is asked by the reader mm-hmm. will you now explain the epithet prostitute yeah right 
And because we want to understand specifically what this very loaded term is being used for. Mm -hmm. And he says that the parliament is without a real master. Under the prime minister, its movement is not studied, but it's buffeted about like a prostitute. Right? So as in that it therefore doesn't have loyalty to one power, mm -hmm. presumably. And presumably that power is a masculine power, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> the prime minister is more concerned about his power than about the welfare of the parliament. His energy is concentrated upon securing the success of his party. And he quotes Thomas Carlyle here, I believe. This idea of parliament as not being steady is often an argument for authoritative, I mean authoritarian government, right? Yeah. That one person running the show but in the welfare of the community is better than this rabble that have their own interests and don't ever come to agreement. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a very old argument. It goes all the way back to Plato in the Republic, um, where Socrates makes the same argument. I feel like I am torn on this because obviously we all have expressed uh, anger at the political class for being self-serving mm -hmm. and clearly it's not something that was invented in India in 1947 yeah. but uh, was there in England uh, at the height of its imperial power, right? But I do feel that there is something about that continuous dialogue of democracy which can never be polite because people do have competing interests. There is something right about people being buffeted one way or the other. I do. I, it's hard for me to let go of that term prostitute uh, because it so completely colors it, everything else. It does. It kind of did for me. I, I read the whole chapter and, and I just kept going back to it and going, I can't get over it, but I should. Or should I? Uh, I guess, uh, yeah, he is in the rest of the chapter talking about how the English parliament is not all that it's touted to be and that it's not it's not possible to recall a single instance in which the finality can be predicted for its work but isn't that the whole purpose of a democratic process that it's not it's not always predictable cannot be predicted to finality i mean he is pretty much questioning democracy right there right yes or at least this kind of representative democracy. Right. He quotes Carlyle calling it the talking shop of the world, which it is. The parliament is the talking shop of the world, I guess. And and I think he also says uh, that to the English voters, their newspaper is their Bible, and they take all their cues from the newspapers, which are often dishonest. So they change their views frequently, and that they change it every seven years. But again... Gandhi changes his views pretty frequently, is what I have felt, you know, reading different things that Gandhi has written through his life. And he's not very, I mean, he's unapologetic about it. And I've always liked that about Gandhi, because he's changed his view often. And, you know, that's human. So, but he's not, he's expecting the people and the parliament to be different. The, the thing that I think he doesn't address, which is not asked of him as the editor mm -hmm. or post back to the reader, mm -hmm. is that here's this nation that he's saying is completely degraded, mm -hmm. right? It's being ruled by people who work only in their own interests and so on and so forth. But you have to ask, how did that nation manage to rule half the world? Right, yeah. Where, where can, I mean, and this is a question that 
you can also ask of say the United States today, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Anyone, I mean, you're talking about how there's such a divide and Republicans and Democrats don't get together and blah, blah, blah. But that seems so incongruous with the immensity of American power pretty much anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't quite understand that either. Like, I mean, it is. How is it that someone is able to project such power in the face of lack of internal coherence? Right. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a short chapter. So he ends it by pretty much saying that if India copies England, it will be lost. Yeah. Will be ruined, and he That's and he puts he puts the blame on something completely different. He's saying it's not a particular or peculiar fault of the English people, but this condition, this malaise, is modern civilization. Maybe we should move with him to the topic of civilization. Yep. Right, where he says, "What is civilization?" He says, "A man whilst he's dreaming believes in his dream. He's undeceived only when he's awakened from his sleep." Mm-hmm. And he says that civilization, its true test lies in the fact that people living in it make bodily welfare the object of life. Yep. Right. And uh, you could argue that that is not an invention of modern civilization because uh, even in a very traditional Hindu setting, the Purushartha have four ends of life. Mm -hmm. Two are Kama and Artha. So I, I don't think... In fact, from all our historical accounts, it seems that if you visited India in uh, 500 Roman era, uh, you would have seen people uh, promoting bodily happiness in oh yeah <laughs> in the most subtle kinds of ways. Absolutely, yeah. Civilization, I think that is also part of civilization, according to Gandhi, right? Like all of those, just the promotion of bodily welfares becoming the object of your life is civilization, according to Gandhi. It's not a technological revolution. It's not anything. I mean, all of that is part of it. But I think he's probably talking about all of those times when the self has become more important than anything else. And I have to say that I'm of conflict views on this, Mm. meaning that if you think of the various bodily enjoyments, Mm. and I don't mean lavish, the kind of... Not Caligula. uh, No, not Caligula and not Goldman Sachs, uh, but the kind of happiness that people in India often don't enjoy at all. So let's take something like dancing. Mm -hmm. Men and women pretty much do not dance together in non-tribal India. At least I have never seen that. But um, they do dance together in Gujarat, where Gandhi is from. Right, in the Dandia. Yeah. But what I mean is that that's a festival. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm just thinking, comparing a Garba to just, say, a salsa or a merengue. I mean, so things that would be considered, would probably be condemned by him as too sensual. Mm-hmm. But these are not being done by rich communities. They're being done by people who are, who are, I think in the same stage of civilization as Gandhi might have even agreed with. Mm-hmm. And and so one question I have is that, is it possible to respect and even appreciate the body, both as something that determines our health and happiness, but also as a source of pleasure? Mm-hmm. I find in this, ver- in this kind of strict version of Gandhi, which is particularly the previous chapter yeah. I have to highlight so much, uh, I see this denial of our fleshiness, mm-hmm. which is, again, which is a problem, right? Because I think that you don't have to make your body into a Californian temple to appreciate its value. Yeah. 
this this is also a chapter where i felt that gandhi becomes a, a bit of nostradamus because he predicts pretty well pretty accurately i must say what the future will be where he says it has been stated that as men progress they shall be able to travel in airships and reach any part of the world in a few hours men will not need the use of their hands and feet they will press a button and they will have their clothing by their side they will press another button and they will have their newspaper a third and a motor car will be in waiting for them and there'll be a variety of delicately dished up food i mean he's talked about amazon uber munchery all of them right there right, 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 right. So, exactly yeah you know we could just in fact almost summarize it this paragraph as there is an app for that absolutely right? yeah yeah everything will be right. done by machinery so people want to i mean they used to fight by hand, by hand and now it will be one person with a gun behind a hill or in a nightclub so that's a dire like warning from gandhi a century or more ago that was very interesting again i feel myself conflicted mm-hmm. uh, because i have to say that not necessarily in terms of its output because i it's not that i want to just sit by the bedside while my clothes are fetched mm-hmm. um and incidentally i don't think that it would be any better if that fetching was done by a human being rather than a machine mm-hmm. right or yeah. by a camel or yeah. some animal or whatever nevertheless the romance of building a machine that can do that mm-hmm. i'm enough of a nerd that i feel there's something cool about building those machines i agree right? and i i think i personally would feel better if a machine is doing it for me than a person of course when the machines take over take away livelihood from people who could be doing that right and this is again an interesting kind of semi conservative argument right which is should you i mean and and i've had this argument and i've kind of sometimes played both sides of this argument back in india you know where i i certainly have a huge problem with people who have live-in servants in India especially live-in young right right which is so common mm-hmm. but at the same time the counter argument has been that for, for people for whom there's no other source of livelihood would you then deny it right and um, i i don't know if there's some universal principle that can decide it one way or the other it's a, it's a complicated issue for sure as i was saying that the fact that i'd rather a machine do that for me than a person i was thinking of the questions of the whole informal sector there's always conflict points between those so do we take away their jobs and i think you're right there's always this aversion to change technological change maybe gandhi was going through exactly that that he just did not want things to change instead of you know embracing change as you know a given and then seeing how best we can engage with it so maybe if jobs are being taken away see how more people can be trained in a way it's not possible that machines will be able to do everything that a human being does so i guess we need to see we need to conquer new frontiers on what human beings can do and complement the machines i mean machines can do the drudgery the you know the work of the brainless work i guess but it's also you know it's it's a fact that what say for example in india the software outsourcing industry for which which you could argue has been our biggest pride right mm-hmm. commercially mm-hmm. is clearly suffering as a result of automation and for i think several years wages have been stagnant in that field and it's only going to increase because the kind of stuff that people were uh, outsourcing to india they are now doing it on a machine in california 
I mean, you know, this is a perennial question. Is mechanization just going to simply end work as we know it? Or will there be new forms of labor that emerge? Mm -hmm. But in a country like India, where so few people have access to any kind of modern economy, 800 million young people, so who's going to give them jobs? I think that, I mean, my sense is that in some ways, Gandhi's critique of civilization and its capacity to replace humans by machines is maybe more acute today than it was in 1909. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not enough land for us to go around. I, I want to keep that in the back of my mind. No, you're right. I mean, even if all of us decide to go off the grid and farm and cultivate, there's probably not enough land for all of that anymore. <laughs> and, and to be frank... It will mean people like us who have the money to invest in a alternative farm as a lifestyle choice uh, rather than a poor subsistence yeah. farmer for whom yeah, yeah. they don't have those kinds of uh, well, capacities. Yeah. And this is this is also the chapter where, like we mentioned earlier, that this is where he says women who should be the queens of households wander in the streets and slave away in factories. For a pittance. But that, you know, that wandering the streets again has the tinge of prostitution. Too. Exactly. What, no. do, what do you mean to wander in the streets? Uh-huh. I mean, he's slut shaming before slut shaming was a thing. Yeah. It's horrible when your saints are reduced to humans. So I think let's move on to chapter seven. And uh, the reader is, I was the reader also. And I was like, enough about civilization. But why, like you said earlier, that if England was so ill and so diseased, how was she able to take India and retain it? And half of the world, really. But Gandhi is talking only about India. And and he talks about, again, I mean, it's interesting that so many of his moralizing statements, he talks about bhang, Mm -hmm. right? If I'm in the habit of drinking bhang and a seller thereof sells it to me, am I to blame him or myself? And this kind of puritanical thing, I mean, we know this, right? For example, in the war against drugs, Mm -hmm. so-called war against drugs, um, blaming the addict uh, has been the foundation of disastrous policy, at least in the United States. Yeah. We know this. And uh, it also underestimates the, the nature of the capitalist economy, as in how is desire and uh, how is consumer behavior first, you know, how is it made to happen? How do we get to a point where we want to buy this stuff from the English in the first place? Mm-hmm. And Company Bahadur. I think Company Bahadur was the term that they used for East India Company, right? Yes. He says that the English did not really take India. We gave it to them. We handed it to them on a platter. And uh, they're not here because they're so strong. They're here because we keep them. It's. I feel like it's hard for me to believe that in the following sense again, which is... He, you know, because he does talk about how Hindus and Muslims keep fighting against each other and, and maybe generally Indians keep fighting against each other. But the fact is that the Europeans fought with each other even more ferociously. Think about it. In 1909, it was just preceded by Germany invading France. Before that, the fight against Napoleon, which was tremendously disrupted. Mm-hmm. The various revolutions, which were also tremendously disruptive. So... I think it was not internal division. Maybe England did not have civil war, yeah. but certainly France did. Mm-hmm. That didn't stop Europe from colonizing others. No. So 
So I, I, you know, I'm just thinking historically, it's not clear as if it's the internal division that prevented us from being the empire that we should have been. <laughs> yeah. I think I think he's a little more perceptive in the next section where you know he quotes Napoleon who um, described the English as a nation of shopkeepers because all their dominions all of their colonization they have done on um, yeah on that ba- on the basis of commerce basically and that really made me wonder if the present day company bahadur isn't all of the capitalist neoliberal society which is the US the west even a lot of India today. Everybody's company Bahadur today. So, I, I mean, taking that just one step further, what is true is that in the pursuit of resources for their markets, right, both as supply and as demand, the British changed economic and social fundamentals of India in a way that nobody else did before. Mm-hmm. Like land tenure relations, I mean, everything, land from land tenure relations to uh, taxation to what you name it. And that's what is interesting. How can shopkeeping be more long-term and complete in its impact than something that's just done straightforward at the point of a gun? Mm-hmm. I mean, not that the British were uh, at all queasy about using force. Yeah. I'm just saying. I guess, I guess trade and commerce is more insidious. Like, it just uh, sends, permeates, I think, most of... The economy is pretty wide and prevalent, so maybe that's mm-hmm. how. I mean, I want to think about that further because it is true that once you let economics run society, which is pretty much all, every modern country is that, right? Mm-hmm. It, uh, I mean, whatever else that you're supposed to do, governance is supposedly about managing the economy. Yeah. Once you agree upon that, then we are all nations of shopkeepers. Yeah, exactly. We are all company bahadurs today. Yeah. It doesn't matter that it has whatever uh, Gladstone Company Bahadur or uh, Kumaraswamy Company Bahadur. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on to the condition of India, the reader is now very clear that you know this is why the English have a hold on India. But what does the editor really think about the condition? Of I think this is where Gandhi is very, very emotional and his heart is full the way it was when he started writing the book. And this is where he says that uh, I, I really feel that India is in a pitiable condition today, not because it's under the British, but because it's under the influence of modern civilization. So he pretty much absolves the British of any culpability in India's current uh, then current condition. He talks about how we are turning away from God. Not about Hindu, Mohammedan, or Zoroastrian religion, but about that religion which underlies all religions. We are turning away from God. Yeah. And presumably towards uh, shopkeeping and the improvement of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that this has been a, a very long standing critique of, I mean, again, a conservative critique of modern culture generally. Right, that it replaces God. It's idol worship in the Christian sense of that term. Right, that it replaces uh, God, who is the true object of worship, with either the human body or or material wealth as a false idol. And what I don't see yet is why is that turning away the cause of our downfall. Mm-hmm. Meaning, would the British not? I mean, I guess, I guess the argument would be, 
that if we were concerned only with God, we would not buy the uh, nice widgets that the British wanted to sell to us, and therefore they wouldn't have been able to conquer us. Mm-hmm. Maybe is, is that an argument? I don't know. I mean, I think that apart from the specific argument that he's making, what I appreciate about Gandhi is that he's, I mean, he's saying that the standard model of political independence is we replace the British by Indians, but otherwise replicate their structures of power. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what Gandhi is saying that the problem is not that it's British rather than Indians, the problem is the underlying structure of uh, commerce and power. Mm-hmm. And I think that that we can agree with, even if we don't agree with. Absolutely right. I mean, what has happened is exactly what we had feared. That we, the British left, but we took over everything, at least all the structures, the government, the civil society, the civil structures, the, the agencies, the laws, everything. We pretty much copied what they left. So I actually want to uh, press on that a little bit further because you're absolutely right. But I also think that what we mean by independence was, after all, a transfer of power. Mm-hmm. Right? It was a very, it was a legal transfer of power to a government that was recognized by the departing power. Yeah. And therefore, it's not at all surprising that the structures remained essentially the same because we, you know, we we did not actually undergo a revolution or a transformation of the social conditions. No. We, we said X was in power, we replaced X by Y. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I think earlier on, before Bangladesh was created, that's, that was when Naxal Bari and all of that ha- happened, right? So that, that was pretty early on after independence and already the youth were disillusioned enough with the system to actually go to the other extreme, say that, you know, violence is going to change the power, the land should belong to the peasants and it was a very radical stance that the youngsters were taking right away and they clearly noticed that uh, the government, including the Communist Party in Calcutta and West Bengal, had not done what they thought they would do for the people because they were pretty much an extension of what existed before. Yes. Is it possible within the category of nationhood to even challenge that because what does it mean to found a nation and to build one? It is to organize power in a certain way. Right? I mean, that is what we have signed up for. We, I mean, we haven't signed up for, you know, in the nationalist project. We haven't signed up for, as far as I can tell, the justice to the, the ones who need it the most. I mean, I don't think that that is even really considered as the central aspect of the project. I guess when I look at it in retrospect, I think that should be a central aspect of the project because independence, because those people who we are talking about, who the social justice aspect, then they are not independent even today. I mean, how does it matter to them if the change of power happened, one set of powerful people who happen to be British to one set of powerful people who are now Indians? It doesn't change life for them. What's the point? So let me flip that around. So let us say, let's take Kashmir, right? Mm -hmm. To take one place where people are saying Azad. Mm -hmm. So they want freedom from India. And it's kind of hard to look at their demand and say it's an illegitimate demand because we're not exactly treating Kashmir Mm -hmm. well. Uh, But at the same time, you have to ask, would replacing Indians by Kashmiris make any difference? Uh, especially when, you know, what does it even mean when freedom is articulated as self-determination of a people? It's not clear if that 
is conducive to justice ever. Meaning that it could happen, but I don't think that the achievement of justice and equality is the actual project of self-determination and freedom in that sense. But it is an objective of nation building. You think? I would hope so. I, I don't know. Meaning that I, I don't know whether apart from the rhetoric where I agree that it is very much there, if if the people in power, when they see themselves and their responsibility, right? I don't because I don't think that those they are just purely cynical. They are people who see themselves as having a certain mandate. I mean, they're politicians, and therefore they're quite keenly attuned to what people have put them in power for. I don't think justice is seen as central to their job. That's my sense. Maybe distribution. Maybe redistribution, but I... Maybe they don't see it, but I'm saying shouldn't that be the guiding principle for all of their policies, for the distribution of resources, everything. The fact that it's possible, it's it's obviously true that it hasn't been the central tenet of nation building. I'm saying it ought to have been, it ought to be now. It's worrying that it's not something very central to the idea of a nation. I mean, so this is maybe I'm channeling my Tagore against Gandhi that maybe the nation is not the entity that can assure that outcome for us. That in fact, Tagore's uh, criticism of Gandhi might be that by making the na- na- national project the dominant project of our time, you are making it less likely to achieve these other goals. If you look at the history of Europe, if Europe had not colonized the rest of the world and used that to subsidize their development, I'm not sure if they would have achieved what they have. I'm, I'm just I'm just being a skeptic, perhaps just for the sake of argument, for, of the national project. I feel like there's so much here to parse carefully, even though you're being somewhat critical, but to just use that as a way to understand the birth of the Indian national We will read chapters 9 through 12 next time. Until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy your time. Or coffee. All right, Rajesh, talk to you next time.